friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're very happy that you're joining us again this week. We love our listeners. We love that you keep tuning in, and we hope that we are delivering for you some conversations with real consequences. I'm delighted to have my TCA colleague and co-hostess, Maureen Ferguson, back with me. We are very happy together to welcome Dr. Fox, Dr. Virginia Fox. She's the Honorable Congresswoman from North Carolina's District 5. She has been working very hard to keep our schools open amid the ongoing pandemic. She's a Republican leader of the Educational Committee in Congress. Thank God she's a woman of wisdom and experience, and her heart is in the right place with the children. But first, Kristen Hawkins, she is the leader of Students for Life. She's going to join us to discuss this expose uh, that they've just published on Christian and Catholic colleges across the country that have official ties to Planned Parenthood. They've done the whole world a favor and uh, expose that for all of us. It's on their website. You've got to read about it. Welcome to the show, Kristen. Thanks for having me. Kristen, I was on your show recently and enjoyed talking to you so much. I really felt that we hit it off and that we we have so much in common about our, our views of how important it is to, to create a pro-life culture, especially for young people. I find that for young people that uh, pro-life is so protective of all the ways that they, they learn to relate to each other as they're looking at their, their future and forming their lives and their families. To be pro-life is such a beautiful, protective thing. That's absolutely right. And, you know, we have a lot of discussions, as, as you and I got into, to talk about as we prepare for this post-Roe America, what it's going to look like and, and these conversations that we, we need to start having within our families and our churches and our communities. Yeah, because uh, if, if what we hope comes true, if Roe does actually fall in the next few months, then the young people are going to be actually maybe exposed to more more mm-hmm. uncertainty and maybe more aggressive tactics from, from the pro-death side, from the death culture, the culture of death, because, you know, they're going to be riled up and they're going to be looking for ways to make things, to solidify things in, in the pro-death, in the pro-choice way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've already seen a ratcheting up of, you know, free speech suppression on college and high school campuses where, you know, in the midst of a major lawsuit against the high school in Indiana, for example, right now. And so, you know, you'll, you'll see that where there'll just be a suppression of speech. But something that you brought up on the po- on my podcast, which I went back and really started discussing with my team is, you know, this question of responsible parenthood and, you know, should you have children or should you just not have children? And should, you know, will we see this push for, and Planned Parenthood obviously makes money off of this, a push for sterilization, um, a push for limiting family size, which we kind of already seen with human rights activists who are, you know, saying oh, there's too many people in the world, you know, the 1970s arguments that are coming back, but this time it's to save the planet, we have to stop producing human beings to inherit the planet. And so I think this there's going to be a lot of things happening with, you know, just the not only the ratcheting up, the fervor that will be generated in June with the Supreme Court's decision, it's hopefully a very good decision, but also these other conversations that we really haven't really started having yet. I feel that there are going to be lots of new areas that we're going to have to mm-hmm. conquer, like things right. that we're going to have to prepare for and actually go out there and conquer the minds and hearts. And I think you, especially as a person who concentrates on the youth, I'm sure that you feel that that's a very big responsibility. It, it absolutely is. And, you know, what's interesting, Dr. Christie, is, is that this is a very diverse generation. We all know that. You read the demographics of Gen Y and Gen Z 
see and, and see that we're the most ethnically diverse, religiously diverse generation. But that carries over into the pro-life movement as well. Mm-hmm. And so we have we have varying views within pro-lifers about how do we have conversations about birth control, about abstinence before marriage, about how to handle these public policy questions of adoption. How do we make adoption easier and cheaper for families? Do we make it more difficult for families? Uh, foster care reform. And, and these are all these conversations that young people are thinking about now as they think about a future without legal abortion. And there, there's definitely going to be lots of conversations within this very diverse pro-life movement that we have. I'm curious about young people. You mentioned their diversity, their religious diversity. Obviously, there are many more young people growing up without any religion at all mm-hmm. because they're growing up in a religious households, a religious families. Do you find that when uh, that this is a completely different conversation to have with young people who don't have a basis in religion when you're trying to talk to them about the dignity of life? Sure. How do you adjust? How do you adjust to this uh, this changing scene? Yeah, we keep our conversations on campuses very secular, to be honest with you. We focus on science and we focus on human rights. And so that way, regardless of whether or not a student is a practicing Christian or says that they're spiritual or says that they have no faith and are agnostic or you know atheist, this is something that all of us can agree on. We all want to follow facts and follow science, and we all want to acknowledge and support and advocate for basic human rights. And so that's kind of how we approach it. It is it, it is a different generation than, for example, our supporters at Students for Life who are older and you know very religious uh, and devout in their faith. But we can we can talk to all audiences on college and high school campuses, sticking with science, sticking with human rights. When you show a young person videos, for instance, or pictures of children in the womb, can you watch that sort of that change in their minds happening (laughs) behind their eyes? Have you seen this happen? Yeah, Yeah. Oh yeah, I more more times than not you actually see the conflict. They see the evidence, the proof in front of them that what is inside of a mother's unique whole living human being. And then they have this conflict, this immediate internal conflict that starts taking place of, but this doesn't line up with the talking points. This doesn't line up with how I'm living my life. I might be in a real sexual relationship with somebody who I don't want to be responsible for raising a child with. And how does this science impact how I'm living my life? And and how I see myself and how I view myself. I see myself as a you know progressive feminist, and, and and yet you're giving me this information that if I would buy into this or I believe this, then that might change the the, the camp, the tribe that I that I belong to. That's what you really see is when you make this case. For example, in the fall, we were on campuses with our first ever 3D video. We took a video that our friends, one of our former interns, uh, Lila, runs a group called Live Action. They made this beautiful video, a baby Olivia of his child developing the womb, we turned it into a 3D video with their permission and we went out on campuses and gave 3D goggles and we were showing students. And Wow, I would love saw, to see that, Kristen. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. You gotta have 3D goggles to view it. But, you know, we saw an immediate, you know, mind change rate between 11 and 15% on campus where, you know, a pro-choice person changing their minds about abortion. But most of the conversations were they got the information, but then they immediately went back to the hard cases because they didn't want to have to forced to change their mind. So it's like every conversation you you have with with these young people, they always really come down to the same, you know, few questions that they have because they feel like those are those are questions that are unanswered or they haven't heard good answers for and therefore it still justifies their anti-science position. You mentioned changing tribes. I have one child in college right now. I've put two through college. I have some more coming up that will be starting soon and I know that the the situation in in, in our colleges all across the United States Mm-hmm. States, even Catholic colleges, most of the Catholic colleges, is a situation of complete homogeneous thought <laughs> adherence to, you know, to a, a, a set of beliefs. And the young people are are very afraid to step away from a step aside from that, especially if they can be detected to be, you know, not not thinking correctly. Are you finding that in this kind of environment, which I think is getting worse every year, and from my experience having children in college mm-hmm. for several years now, are you finding that your work is harder because they are they're afraid to 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 start to believe something which will um, put them at odds with in, in this incredibly homo, you know homogeneous thought environment that they live in. Not as much because you know the way we're talking about this conversation about the violence of abortion, we're couching it in terms of things that they already believe in. 
So talking about, you know, we had our tour two years ago on campuses with Stop the Violence and students were very interested in that. Like, what violence is occurring that I don't know about? Like, how can I stop the violence? Or when we talk about human rights, um, these are things that they are already proud to say that they stand for. Mm -hmm. You know, I stand for human rights. I stand against violence against vulnerable peoples, things like that. And so if you can you can talk about this issue, the, the violence of abortion that's happening as I plan parenthoods and abortion facilities in that way, it, it's easier to, to have that conversation. I, I would say the going back to my other point, I think the harder thing for them is learning the facts and then realizing the way that they're living in their life doesn't line up with those facts that acknowledging the humanity of the preborn child would take away that parachute and we've done a lot a lot of research uh, with our Dimitri Institute for Prolific Advancement on this of how these I don't like abortion but young women and young men think and there's like this parachute in their mind of I don't like abortion I wouldn't have abortion unless like it was like this really rare circumstance and I don't even want to think about myself ever going to have an abortion but in my mind I have like this escape plan Mm -hmm. this one get out of jail free card that I don't want to talk about I would never publicly say I would ever think about and so that's what's interesting right now with this conversation that we're having about you know this post row America and what America will look like what will happen is that kind of get out of jail free card will be taken away in her mind if and that's just, why these conversations will happen about sterilization and and you know permanent birth control they'll call it or you know we'll come up with some innocuous term uh, but that's why you'll start having these conversation and this push for it because they realize even if she calls herself pro-life or sees herself pro-life, she's always had this like a little escape plan in the back of her mind. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're talking to Kristen Hawkins. She's the powerhouse behind Students for Life. Kristen, I, I mentioned the word, um, I mentioned that being pro-life in young people is protective. And I mentioned this bit exactly in the way you're, you talk about it. I talk, I, I talk about this with mothers of uh, young men and women and when, you know, and when I talk to groups and things. And I say to them, when you teach your young, per, your young son or daughter to be pro-life, what you're doing that is that you're protecting them from promiscuity. Because mm-hmm. when they when they connect that those dots and they say, well, if, if I'm really not willing to kill my offspring, then I better make sure mm-hmm. that any act that I do that leads to offspring mm-hmm. will be, you know, a way in, in a way that I will that I will welcome it, or at least, you know, my husband and I will figure it out, or my wife and I will figure it out. It's not a tragedy like it would be in another situation. When, as you mentioned, you're sleeping with somebody who you, you don't really want to raise a child with or be married to. Um, so that's. Do you find that 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 idea of protectiveness? against that those lifestyles i mean if we could just like pull back the you know time and go back a little earlier than these poor students in college who've been raised to think that well abortion might be bad but it is an escape a a little escape plan i can i can count on yeah i I do think that and that's a really great way for for parents to have that conversation about abstinence even you know if your child's like i don't want to talk about religion or whatever uh okay fine let's talk about let's talk about science let's talk about what happens in in you know heterosexual sex and the logical natural consequence of that creation unique human life um you know if you agree that that's a human life and that human life is worth protecting and has value then what do you what do you think you have to do in your behaviors i like what you say Kristen, about the way you talk to young people and that you use the things that already um enervate Mm -hmm. them and activate them and that and that they feel really confident about as a virtue, right? The protective protection, yep. protective feelings again for the vulnerable, um, the idea of equity, right, and inclusion. Do you use those mm-hmm. terms? Because sometimes I think you know one of the most obviously in a in a world that in a culture that is dominated by these ideas of equity and inclusion, what could be less equitable and inclusive than the millions mm-hmm. of abortions that you know we tally up every every year? You know, we haven't used the word equity on campuses yet. I'm actually taking a note on that right now. That might be a very good talking point to try out this year because they are hearing the word equity. I, as a conservative, you know, I hate that word me too, uh, me when too. I hear it. I cringe because <laughs> I'm like, wait, you're not talking about equality. And they're like, no, no, equity is much, you know, it's, it is. I mean, that's why we've come to the point where we are. Um, but that actually is a really great, um, that might be on our next tour, by the way. <laughs> oh, good. I'll look out for it. What about inclusion? Yeah, I mean, we definitely talk about um, discrimination mm-hmm. and 
including those who are different um, in, in our human race. Um, and I think that that goes very well. It, and it's interesting, too, because you'll see the culture, despite the fact that we have this this culture that values the perfect human being. And, and you know, don't get me started about the whole IVF conversation. But it's interesting that you start to see the pendulum shift where like last, I think it was last year or two years ago, Target, you know, some of their models now have Down syndrome who model yes, children's yes. clothes. And so you've actually started to see a shift back and it's from the left. It's not really from the right um, of, of wait, maybe we need to, to include people who might have a different genetic code than we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, that is definitely a conversation that we have. Yeah, that's that's a very encouraging thing. I, I saw that. I saw them including Down syndromes, uh, women mm-hmm. and men. And it is a it's a beautiful thing to think that you can approach that same place from the left, right, and say, oh, we have to include, and we have to be diverse, and um, and then having them actually make that leap. I wonder if they can go so far as to make the leap though that a woman who is pregnant with a Down syndrome child should feel that it's not so uniquely burdensome yeah she should select against that child yeah what's interesting is i've started to see the pendulum shift on down syndrome uh i haven't seen the pendulum shift in you know cystic fibrosis for example the two the disease two of my children suffer from uh these other diseases um because it's this question and we've seen definitely a ratcheting up of this in the past three or four months in media surrounding the Dobbs decision and the hearings of the notion of eliminating the sufferer where it's, it's sort of widely accepted now that children down syndrome, you know, can have long lives um, and lives that, you know, especially after childhood and, you know, usually there's initial heart surgery. I mean, you know, all that mm-hmm. um, and PT and OT, but they can live productive long lives where now but there's other diseases that, um, you know, have been shown and we know shorten lives and shorten a lifespan. And there's still this concept out there of uh, eliminating sufferers. Uh, and that's how we eliminate suffering in our world. And that is completely warped and completely backward. And that is probably every single time I'm on a campus speaking, whether my tour or whether we're doing a campus display, that comes up. Uh, and that is something we have to do a better job of talking about is helping and standing with and suffering with those in our lives, having true compassion and mercy and empathy uh, without uh, eliminating them or saying that they don't have value. And I think it's, I remember in college, I had to watch the movie Gattaca with Ethan Hawke. It came out in the late 90s. It's about like this perfect world. And, you know, these perfect people are created in test tubes. And if you were one of like the natural born people, you were seen as like a lower class (laughs) because, you know, your genes hadn't been combed through. And I think about all that's happening right now and the conversations and the talking points, that's, it's, it's coming true. That, that world from Gattaca is, is very much coming true. Um, And so I think we need to really um, hone in on that conversation about what does it mean to end suffering and, and help those who suffer. Did you see that New York Times report that came out a week or two ago about yes. uh, mm-hmm. genetic testing? So I'll just I'll, I'll I'll give you a little recap for the for our listeners that might not have read it. So in the New York Times did a study on these genetic blood prenatal blood tests that are done to detect chromosomal abnormalities, and they determined that over eighty percent of them were when they were positive. In another in other words, when the test said there was there was a there was a high risk of genetic abnormality, eighty over eighty percent of the time they were wrong. And that, you know, mm-hmm. parents were going ahead and having abortions of babies that were healthy, that turned out to be healthy, um, that maybe they found they found out later after the abortion took place. And the New York Times, the the problem that they had with that I read through the article carefully. I wanted to know why they were upset about this. <laughs> why would the New York Times be upset? And the problem that they had with it was that the babies that were that were dying were turned out to be healthy babies and that that was a great tragedy and also that the tests were costly. The follow-up testing was mm-hmm. costly and I was so struck with that that mentality that was all that was all through the piece without any self-reflection. And the mentality mm-hmm. was that 
it's only a tragedy when you lose a child that's a that's a perfect child that's a healthy child and i'm mm, you know i have five point. i have five children and maybe they were all stamped healthy when they were born but let me tell you none of them are perfect all of them have come with their 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 defects as every human being does um the difficulties that every human being carries with them whether genetically or temperamentally or behaviorally and as yep. par- you know as parents the the ideal of parenthood is an unconditional welcome and we would never say to a parent whose child became disabled through an accident or through a disease well you know i guess this 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 child's too much trouble and we should end their suffering you know a born child Mm -hmm. but we're so comfortable with that kind of selectivity in unborn for parents of unborn children yep no that's that's a great takeaway i mean i was so thankful to see that article come out because you know we hear this a lot in the pro-life movement i'll be at an event speaking and some will say you know they told me my child would have this and my child was born healthy, you know, and, and even our own vice president, Students for Life, she was told her fourth child would have Down syndrome. And, you know, she chose obviously not to have an abortion. And so you hear these stories all the time. And so I was thankful to see this article put that that seed of doubt in a lot of women. And hopefully when women are getting these adverse diagnoses uh, while they're pregnant, they, you know, this New York Times article pops up over and over and over and over mm-hmm. again in her newsfeed that there are some real problems here. And this is a money-making industry that doesn't really care about accuracy to be honest. And we can see that. I mean, really, there should be a congressional investigation of these companies that are making millions upon millions for tests that are grossly inaccurate. I mean, you would never allow this in any other like cancer diagnostics, for example. Oh, just kidding. You don't really have breast cancer, but we already started. We you already took chemo. the breast. Your breast is gone. Yeah, we already took your breast. I mean, think <laughs> think about that. That would never be allowed. Doesn't it make so you I, cringe though, Kristen, yeah. when, when people say, oh, they told me my baby was going to be, but I didn't abort and now the baby's perfect. My child is so healthy. And you want to stop and say, wait a second, whether or not your child is perfect, it's a it's wonderful you didn't abort, right? And, ever, and parents mm-hmm. You know, parents of disabled children, they report the same kinds of, of uh, happiness and satisfaction with their lives as parents with non-disabled children. Did you know this? I was re- doing a little research on that recently. Um, that parents, they factor in their children's um, necessities into their lives and, and mm-hmm. they, they go they march forward the way we all march forward. No, that's, that's exactly right. And it is still this very much notion. And I hear pro-lifers, like I said, say it all the time. But my child was born perfect. My child was born and I'm like well your child was born per- will be per- born perfect regardless of whether or not they had you know actually been born with the disease um and but it, it's just something that we say and I think it's kind of said thoughtlessly and it's without malice oh I'm sure um, it, no it, no it's completely without yeah. malice but it, it is, it is, it is very, it, it's, it's even similar of, you know, I hear a lot in the pro-life movement of, well, she gave her child up for adoption. And I'm like, I'm, I, I, I always try to be very quick with saying, oh, she placed her child with an adoptive family Aww. because we know no birth mother ever gives up on her child. She's made like this ultimate sacrifice. But we, even in the pro-life movement, keep using these terms that society uses, which um, are, are so grossly wrong. Oh, I hate that term, Kristen. I really, really yeah. hate it. My, my little, I have a daughter from China and she's been asked all her life since she was little why did your mother give you away why did oh your mother gosh. give you up and, I'm, and it's been asked in front of me by little children they don't mean anything but you know yeah. and my heart just my heart just shatters into little pieces <laughs> don't yeah. say this to her please yeah. well meanwhile her mother's probably and her mother and father i'm sure are heroes and mm-hmm. you know absolute saints for not aborting her <laughs> Mm-hmm. And her mother probably thinks of her every day. Yes, we pray. Um, we pray for her parents yeah. and her grandparents and her siblings if she has any in China. Every single day we pray for them, and I know that they love her very much. You yep. know, Kristen, we're almost out of time, and I can't believe I didn't get to the point of all this. <laughs> I, I had something I wanted to talk to you about. Sorry, um, but we. I love talking to you, and we did. We did have a wonderful conversation. But please tell us about the report that the student that your organization, Students for Life, came out with about colleges and universities that have ties to Planned Parenthood. Yeah, absolutely. We came out with a Christian school study. You can go to our website since we don't have a lot of time to to look it up and we have a little map there. I believe it's studentsselect.org slash Christian schools um, or you can just find it on our Facebook. But essentially, we spent two years, we researched every single Christian school in America looking at their ties to Planned Parenthood, um, public ties to Planned Parenthood. So meaning referring to Planned Parenthood for services, giving uh, institutional internship credits to Planned Parenthood, things like that. We found a 103 Christian Christian schools had ties to Planned Parenthood. Um, 
we have seen um, several Catholic schools that were on this list. Today, right now, after our original, you know, 103 list, we actually contacted, we did the Christian thing, we went to all the schools in private, we said, look, we found this, we're not sure, you, Mr. Administrator, are aware of this, you know, help us correct this problem. So after that, we had a orig- we had over 40 group, 40 schools reverse course, remove their public ties to Planned Parenthood. So right now we have 69 schools that still have public ties to Planned Parenthood after we've reached out three times to the school. Eight of those 69 schools today are Catholic schools. Originally, there were 22 Catholic schools that had infractions, and today there are eight. I'm really surprised, Kristen, that you found so many Christian and Catholic schools with ties to Planned Parenthood because Planned Parenthood is is so honest and forthright about the evil that they do that it's, it's amazing to me that these schools would... Because sometimes you know that things happen without people being aware of them, right? Like you, you work with some organization that also has ties to another organization, you weren't paying attention, right? But Planned mm-hmm. Parenthood is is you know the the bugaboo of <laughs> of evil, <laughs> at least from a Christian perspective and a Catholic perspective. That's absolutely right. And, and sadly, the schools that are remaining these eight Catholic schools that are still on this list, and you, uh, you can go to studentsflight.org/slash/christian-schools and see who they are. They are adamant and proud of really? the fact that they are a Catholic school and yet still promote Planned Parenthood. And so we need folks go to the map. You can contact the administrator of the school. You can spread the information on social media to any you know, alumni that you may know, parents who are sending children to these schools. Um, we need to get word out and, and notice to these schools that we're paying attention. We expect them to uphold a semblance of Christian teaching, being that these vulnerable children have the equal right to life, and that should not be violently destroyed and dismembered through these painful abortion procedures. Well, I'm so glad that your that Students for Life made this list. I hope that our listeners will go to your uh, website and look at that and see if they know one of these schools. Maybe they're an alumnus. Maybe you have students or whatever. Just write an email. (laughs) It's only a moment, right? It only takes a moment to write an email. So thank you so much, Kristen, for joining me today. I really enjoyed talking to you. I hope to see you in a couple weeks at the March for Life in D.C. Maybe maybe we'll see lots of our listeners and uh, fellow travelers there because it's always such a fabulous uh, time to connect with people who feel strongly about the dignity of life. So thank you, Kristen, and see you soon, I hope. Thank you. God bless. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. I'm delighted to have my TCA colleague and co-hostess, Maureen Ferguson, back with me. We are very happy together to welcome Dr. Virginia Fox. She's the Honorable Congresswoman from North Carolina's District 5. Welcome to the show, Congresswoman Fox. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Christie. I appreciate it. Very honored to be invited to be with you and Maureen Ferguson. Oh, well, cer- certainly. Show. The honor is ours, uh, Dr. Fox. It's very it's very good of you to make time for us. I know that you're having a very busy day with uh, votes on the Hill and everything. But we wanted to ask you about a, a couple of things that you're very, you're very up on and you're very involved in. For instance, something that we've been discussing on this show constantly since the, since the beginning of the COVID pandemic and all the, and the lockdowns is the effects on children. Both Maureen and I have children of all ages and, and we're, we're watching all of this play out in ways that are very detrimental to our children and I know that this is also something that's important to you. Oh, it absolutely is. And it's, it's uh, important to everybody I know that has children who um, have been denied the opportunity to go to school. But it is having a tremendous effect on children. Keeping them isolated at home is causing a lot of emotional and, and mental health problems for the children. They're experiencing anxiety and depression because they're not in school. I mean, most of us, 
just know what an important socializing experience school is. And it's it's really unfortunate what's been happening. I mean, we know from numbers what an impact this is having. Suicide attempts have drastically risen, especially young girls. Even the CDC tells us that the number of ER visits for suspected suicide attempts by 12 to 17-year-olds has risen by 51% from 2019 to early 2021. So it's that is a public health crisis in and of itself. Unfortunately, the teachers unions and the education establishments not talking about that. I wonder if, if, if a lot of people, do you think most people are keeping track of this or are most people just uh, staring at those uh, COVID-19 numbers and, and they keep concentrating on, on what is just one other huge crisis that we're experiencing? And, of course, we know that the numbers that we're hearing uh, on the TV and on the radio are very skewered because they're, they're choosing to report cases constantly, mm-hmm. and they do it in percentages. So, you know, 100% of one is one. Yes. <laughs> so you can go from one case to two cases, and they can say, cases have increased 100%. Well, if you don't know what the base is... But that kind of thing scares people. I hear that all the time, and I think, oh, my goodness, they present these numbers about COVID in the worst possible way they can do it by being very nonspecific. Give us percentage number, but not tell you what the base is. Right. And and it's the fear that is, has led to these closures. And one would think that at this point in the pandemic, when it's so apparent uh, the harm that these school closures are causing to our children, um, right. as you point out, not only in terms of mental health, but, you know, the lack of academic, I mean, they're, they're falling behind on academics and socialization, everything. So, and we know that as you're the lead Republican on the House Education Committee, so we know that you follow this closely. So at this point in the pandemic, to still have some schools shutting down, I want to ask you to comment on a comment that you made. We, this quote from you caught our eye. This is why we wanted to invite you to join us on the show. But you said, remember the $2 trillion dollars that was fast-tracked through Congress over the past year to allegedly address the impact of COVID-19 in the schools. And less than 9% of that went to public health initiatives. So what on earth happened to all this money? Why can't schools stay open? Well, that's a good question, but we can't get the Department of Education to do a very good accounting of what's out there. And that's very important. And when they say we don't have those numbers, we don't have those numbers, that is on purpose that they are not getting the numbers that we should be getting on what's happening. Where did the money go? We know that much of the money hasn't been drawn down. And when we warned about that, the first uh, three tranches of the money gave them three times what they would normally get in a year's time. And then we added to that. And so they had so much money, they really couldn't spend it all on doing this. We gave them $120 billion to help the schools reopen, but... At the start of 2022, 5, 000, almost 5,409 schools canceled class or switched to remote. And again, they've only done limited tracking of how the money's being spent. Taxpayers, hardworking taxpayers give up their money voluntarily every year, but they need to know how their money's being spent. It's hard-earned money, and they should know. Most of the time, taxpayers want to fund education. They want to fund health care, but they also want to know that their money's being well spent. Congresswoman, as a fellow Catholic and as an educator, I'm sure you've had a close eye on how the Catholic schools have fared during this pandemic. And they, of course, have either gotten no pandemic relief money or very little, especially relative to the public schools, which are awash in taxpayer money right now. But yet the Catholic schools have largely managed to stay open for in-person education. And I think 
think what a lot of them is discovered, we feel so blessed that our children's schools stayed open. You know, they were creative. They put up tents outside um, during the, you know, while numbers were spiking. They opened the doors and windows, which, you know, that cost, you know, that doesn't cost a dime to open the doors and windows. And at this point, they're not required to wear those cloth cloth masks, which, you know, there's a lot of admission now that maybe those don't even really work so well, the cloth masks. So they really don't do any good. You know, we're just the incompetence of the CDC in all of this is becoming aware to everybody. I mean, even even the liberals are, are beginning to question a lot about the CDC and the recommendations and they've made, Dr. Fauci has made, that, you know, masks haven't worked and most of the things that the six-foot separation was not based on anything that made any sense. Uh, it was just pulled out of the air. So what the difference is, Maureen, is in the Catholic schools, as in many charter schools, as in many other private schools, the focus is on educating the children. That's what their focus is. The government-run schools, the traditional government-run schools, are run by the unions, and the politicians owe their souls to the unions. They, They are controlled by the unions. The union leadership and many of the union teachers, I won't say all, because we know there are good teachers out there. And in the states where they don't have unions, that's where you see um, the the best practices going on as far as keeping the children in school. It's where the unions have so much control that... Um, that the the students are most deprived. And in many cases, it's the students who need the education the most. But the teachers' unions ignore the evidence about the safety of the school environment. You mentioned that people are becoming very aware now of the mistakes of the CDC and the way that they've allowed themselves to be politicized. Do you think that uh, people are also becoming aware of how terrible the the teachers' unions can be when when their main focus is on the the comfort of the teachers and the desires of the teachers and not on the, the, the needs of children? Absolutely. I think the only good thing that's come out of COVID has been the exposure of the education system in our country Mm -hmm. at all levels. It's been true with, with preschool. You know, I have a member of my staff who has two children in a government subsidized preschool and they closed the place down at the least little thing and parents are just desperate and then you have the public schools that are closing down and and the universities that are taking away all freedoms from students not letting them come on campus and if they do come on campus they're forcing them to take the vaccines and the boosters and isolating them for 10 days when CDC says five days. I have been very anti-unions and and I want to see choice in schools. I've been a big choice proponent all my life and I think this is going to do more to um, promote those value the, the value of choice more than anything. So I think they're digging their own graves. I hope that's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Do you see any movement on the issue of school choice, though, or do you think all of those efforts will just be stymied as long as the kind of union controlling Democratic Party is in power? No, I think there'll be tremendous movement toward more school choice. Uh, I was talking to one of my colleagues a few minutes ago, uh, just before I came on with you, um, and he's saying that in Wisconsin, it's really picking up steam. And I I think it is all over the country. So you're going to see, I think, more and more choice. You know, the ironic thing about it is for post-secondary education, we, we give grants and loans to students, and the money goes with the students. It doesn't go to the institution. That's the way it should be with elementary and secondary education. The money should go to the student. You know, I asked the staff the other day to give me uh, the figures on three school systems, and I've forgotten exactly which ones they were. I think New York, California, I'm a little hesitant to say right now, and I'm not sure I can find it. But do you know that 
California, I think, spends $26,000 per year on a student in elementary and secondary school. That's a fortune. Yeah. And the the other two states, it's over $23,000 a year. And I remember... I remember reading an article in the Wall Street Journal probably 25 years ago about how the New York City schools at the time were giving $10,000 per student and the Catholic schools were getting $5,000 in tuition and yet the only students graduating from high school and going on to college were coming out of the Catholic schools. (laughs) That's exactly right. Those statistics are generally true across the country that Catholic schools educate children at half the cost of their public school counterparts and even in inner city Catholic schools they have graduation rates that are above 90%. I've seen even statistics like 98% graduation rates from these Catholic schools and then large numbers of them going on to college as well. You know, can we get your your thoughts on a a related controversy that's brewing at the Department of Education. Because during the pandemic, parents became a lot more tuned in to what their children were learning in the public schools and not not just what they're learning, but what they're exposed to, the pornographic books in the school library or even this very, very tragic case of the biological teen boy who identified as a girl was allowed to use the girl's bathroom and assaulted a girl in the bathroom, sadly. So parents across the country are gravely concerned. They've been showing up at these school board meetings speaking up and instead of the school boards listening they've silenced the parents you know turning off microphones anyway so these things have escalated and you know now there's this big controversy at the department of education kind of in cahoots with the school boards to target parents to be investigated as potential terrorists domestic terrorists so i I know you've got your eye on that can you share your thoughts on that with us well Calling parents who are exercising their First Amendment right to speak at a school board domestic terrorist tells you how far we have gone in this country in this administration. Mm-hmm. This is absolutely ludicrous uh, to do that. You know, parents are the first teachers of their children. We know that. They have every right in the world to question what's happening in the schools. And I was on a school board for 12 years. And I ran for the school board because the school board, I was at a school board meeting one night, and, and the five guys on the school board were totally incompetent. And, and I was on for 12 years. And they told me, and I always encouraged parents to come, and I was told by the guys on the board that they hated me because I encouraged people to come to school board meetings. Mm. Uh, but I did that when I was a school board member myself. I encouraged parents to come because I wanted them to see what was happening because it very seldom got re- reported in the paper. But parents and students deserve better than what is happening from the school systems in this country, from the Justice Department, from the Biden administration. I have no doubt that there's collusion among different agencies in the Biden administration toward trying to intimidate parents into not coming to school boards and speaking. And again, this is a good thing that's come out in the last year. Um, It was partly in response to COVID, but mostly what happened in Virginia, and all of us followed that very closely, I think, and thank goodness for some of the news media that reported it. Other news media did not about all the things that were happening, but I think it raised uh, the attention of a lot of people. And now we have a lot of parents who are running for school boards. I just hope they don't get frustrated and quit. We need a critical mass of them there, and we need them to also be aware that they'll be co-opted at every stage by the establishment people, because I saw that happen too. Dr. Fox, I'm sure that our listeners are very happy that somebody like you, who understands the the sacred trust that parents place on the schools when they send their children there, somebody who understands that trust and, and the meaning of it is on the on uh, as a lead Republican on the Education Committee. Thank you very much for joining us, Congresswoman Fox. It, it was it was really a pleasure to have you, and and we know you're very busy, and we very much appreciate your. Well, I appreciate you all uh, continuing to educate the public on these issues. And and I would just urge the people, I'd urge uh, your audience to get involved themselves. 
go to school board meetings, support people running for school board, support the right people running for public office, support, find out if their values match your values. That's one of the biggest problems we have right now is people vote blindly. Don't vote either way because your parents were that way or because your friends are that way. Find out who fits your philosophy and vote for those people and work for them and support them in office. Don't just abandon them when they get in office either, because as Maureen will tell you from her experiences, you need to continue to be supported for standing up for what's right. Very wise words. Very wise words from the Honorable Congresswoman representing North Carolina's 5th Congressional District, Dr. Virginia Fox. Thank you all very much, and and please continue your work, and I'll pray for you, and you pray for me, okay? Certainly. Thank you. So much. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us in this Sunday's Gospel, when we will participate liturgically with Him in the most famous wedding of all time. We meditate on the wedding feast of Cain every Thursday when we pray the luminous mysteries of the Holy Rosary. Often we pray about what it reveals about the sacrament of marriage and how Jesus takes the water of the institution of marriage from the beginning with Adam and Eve and raises it to the wine of a sacramental encounter with him. We ponder how Christ brings the marriage between a Christian man and woman into the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. In fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied with words, we ponder every Christmas. As a young man marries a virgin, your builder shall marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so shall your God rejoice in you. The wedding feast of Cana is an implicit revelation not merely of Jesus' miraculous power, but of his spousal love, the nuptial intention of his incarnation, even though no one except Mary would have caught it at the time. But I'd like to examine this interpersonal scene under three different angles. What we learn about Mary's intercession what we learn about the way Jesus generally exercises merciful power, and what we learn about the servant's zealous cooperation. Each of these three has much to say about Christian faith and life. Let's begin with what the scene reveals about the Blessed Mother. Ancient Jewish wedding celebrations, like the one taking place in Cana, would last eight straight days. There were three sumptuous meals a day. Wine was served throughout the octave. It was generally the happiest celebration in the life of Jews, which is why Jesus often returned to the image of a wedding banquet to describe the joys of heaven. Rather than leaving on a honeymoon, the couple would remain, reigning, so to speak, as king and queen over the celebrations. We can only imagine how embarrassing it would be today if at a wedding reception the banquet hall ran out of food or beverages early in the celebration. Even though most people would sympathize with the couple and blame the banquet facility, it would still be terribly embarrassing for the family. In the ancient world, it would be incalculably more so because the family itself threw the reception. If they ran out of supplies, even with days to go during the reception, if they had to serve only water, it would have been an embarrassment that likely would never have been forgotten. Mary was at the wedding and noticed the impending catastrophe. Before the wine steward caught on to the predicament, before the couple did, before even the mother of the bride had noticed, Mary saw the problem. The reason why there was no wine left was probably because the others were drinking so much that they just weren't paying attention. Mary's love made her notice the details others were missing. To remedy the problem, she went to her son. She didn't twist his arm. She didn't try to persuade him that even though it wasn't his hour for working public miracles, because that would inexorably precipitate the cross, he should act. She simply said, they have no wine. Confident that her son, even though he didn't think the timing was appropriate, would miraculously intervene out of merciful love. She knew he loved that couple even more than she did. The episode reveals two things about Mary's merciful intercession. First, Mary seeks to solve problems by bringing them to her divine son. Some of our Protestant brothers and sisters say that Catholics shouldn't pray to Mary because, as St. Paul writes, Christ is our sole mediator between God and man. They say we should eliminate the middle woman and bring all our needs directly to the Lord. Well, there's obviously nothing wrong with praying directly to Jesus. But at the same time, Mary's intercession is no threat to Christ's power. In fact, it reveals Christ's power because it depends entirely on Christ's power. When we pray to Mary, we ask her to bring our needs to her son, just like she brought the need of the couple in Cana. 
Second, we learn that Mary often acts like she did in Cana before we even know we have a problem. She recognized that one of us may have had a really tough week, and she's already interceding for the help we'll need to cope with it. She foresees that some of us will have severe temptations, and she's already sprung into action. She says that some of us are in financial or health difficulties, and she's getting involved before we even turn to her. She grasps that several of us need a good confession, and she's intervening for a priest to be there. Her mercy looks out and acts out of love before we're often aware we're even in need. The second thing that the miracle at the wedding of Cana reveals is how Christ exercises his merciful power. He acts at his mother's behest and anticipates the time of his own suffering, and he acts in a particular way. Christ was and is the creator of the universe. He formed the oceans with just a word. He could have easily filled those six empty 30-gallon water jars with wine through just a thought or a syllable or an Arthur Fonzarelli-like snap of the finger. He could have in an instant created thousands of such jugs on the spot filled with cognac or champagne or anything he wanted. But he didn't act that way. Instead, he turned to the servants and said, Fill the jars with water. He wanted to involve them in his miracle, just like he always wants to involve us in his saving work. He who created us without our consent, as St. Augustine once said, doesn't want to save us without our consent, and he doesn't want to save others without our cooperation. And that brings us to the third thing this episode teaches, which is how to respond to Jesus' inclusion of us in his saving work. St. John tells us simply that when the servants had received Mary's instruction to do whatever Jesus told them, and when they had heard Jesus' imperative to fill the jars with water, they filled them to the brim. These five words conceal an awful lot of effort. In ancient Cana, there were no hoses tied to water pipes to fill the jar. The only place that they could get water to fill the jars was the central well in Cana. Because the jars was made of stone, they would have been extremely heavy to carry to the well, filled with 30 gallons of water, which would weigh another 250 pounds, because each gallon of water weighs 8.35 pounds. They would have been impossible to carry back. The only way that they could have been filled would have been by taking little leather or ceramic containers back and forth to the well. If we imagine that there were five servants, each with a hefty two-gallon container in a hand, in each hand, it would have meant that they would have had to have made nine trips back and forth to the Cana well to get enough water. That would have been a grueling exercise even for those who were fit and strong. Yet they filled the 30 water-gallon jars to the point of overflowing. They zealously did their part, and Jesus used their efforts as the raw material for his incredible miracle. And what a miracle it was. She's converted all 180 gallons of water into wine in a way that made the wine steward himself take notice. How much wine is involved? We're used to looking at wine in 750 milliliter bottles. There are 3.8 liters to a gallon. 180 gallons times 3.8 liters per gallon is 684 liters poured into 750 milliliter bottles. That would be 912 bottles of wine. Think about that for a moment. That's the equivalent of 76 cases of wine. No wedding, even a reception lasting eight days, could ever consume that much. But just like Jesus worked the miracle of the multiplication of the five loaves and two fish and left 12 wicker baskets full of fragments, one for each of the apostles. So Jesus worked this miracle as a sign of what he himself does when we cooperate. In response to the servant's generosity, his generosity is even greater. That's something that it should inspire us to be just as enthusiastic and zealous in our correspondence to the Lord's, including us in his saving plan, as the servants in Cana were. As we prepare for Sunday Mass, we know that Mary is praying for us and advising each of us to do whatever her son tells us. The world lacks in so many places the new wine of faith that Jesus gives. True joy is being sucked out of life. So many rituals and ceremonies ring hollow. 
Jesus wants to incorporate us in his mission to help people to see that there's something far greater than even their greatest human pleasures, a better wine that they await and for which he's made us to thirst. And said Mass that Jesus seeks to strengthen us for that mission, not by turning water into great wine for an eight-day celebration, but turning bread and wine into his own body, blood, soul, and divinity to strengthen us and through us others to come to the eternal banquet. The miracle at the wedding feast of Cana was a prelude to this greatest miracle of all. We follow Mary's command to do whatever Christ tells us by doing this in memory of him. And we come seeking to allow Jesus to fill us to the brim with his grace and love so that being so transformed by his spousal union with him, we will be made capable of bringing everyone to the feast that will last into eternity. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers. 